Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and it's another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. The story of wrestling in America as told by the Tennessee Stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into time, back into the ring. Let's get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. All right, Ron, I know you just made an appearance. You love being out with the folks in Jefferson City, the Jefferson City Fair. Hey, what's going on? Tell us about that. Oh, geez, man. Uh, you know, like you say, I always like going to these things and meeting fans. And this was a nice little uh, nice little uh, city uh, just outside of Knoxville. And uh, they invited me to come to be part of the fair and uh, sign some autographs and say hello to fans and so I really enjoyed it. Uh, just got done with that uh, actually last night. And uh, so, uh, uh, like I say, man, uh, it's it's something I like to do. And uh, wow, I had a good good little following, uh, and quite a few people showed up. And you know, uh, real nice. Always and always like going to the fair, man, for the food. Heck yeah! <laughs> you you can't not go for the food when you stop by the fair. What, what's your favorite food at the fair? Oh, geez, man, I guess uh, uh, corn dogs, man, is you a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. All right, I'll go for the corn dog. And the the, the funnel cakes, are they're kind of addicting as well. All oh, right. yeah. All right, Stud, let's begin today with the fantastic response you've gotten from the last Studcast, number 306, which has been really big. Listeners have been growing in leaps and bounds for a while now, but you shattered the all-time record last week again, many saying the best stud cast ever, and that's a pretty big statement since, look, you've only been doing these about 300 so far now, Ron, so that's a pretty big statement. Yeah, man, I guess it is. Uh, you know, it's been pretty crazy, man, since uh, number 306 went out last week. Uh, we got on some subjects in it that I really never intended to talk about last week, and uh we got to going into pretty great depth about hard ways, my father and my grandfather's death from all Alzheimer's and, and some strong criticism of my 1979 Southeastern Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette, just to name a few. So, uh, well, <laughs> people really, uh, guess, uh, I guess they enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, but you know, I think a little bit of controversy is a good thing. After all, these are podcasts about wrestling, no less. And there are a few podcast subjects anywhere more controversial than professional wrestling. And lately, that's definitely what's been happening on this show. 
Well, there's no doubt about uh, that fact, man. Uh, we are a little controversial as far as the subject's concerned. And uh, since the early 1920s, basically, when the sport changed uh, from real to not so real, everybody has their own opinion now. And in a way, that's, that's why I think the sport has flourished, not only in America, but around the world. Like I said last week during the first podcast, uh, you know, the, uh, I've always told it like it is. And I didn't change that last week, obviously. <laughs> All right. I know. And I think fans appreciate that fact as well. It's what makes your podcast unique. That and the fact that you came from the oldest and largest wrestling family ever and probably have more experience in in every aspect of the wrestling business than maybe anyone on planet Earth. Jeez, man, I don't know about that, Dave. But, uh, <laughs> but I do know that wrestling, you know, that the wrestling war we discuss every week now, uh, that was something that very few promoters or owners of wrestling companies ever dealt with. Mm -hmm. And there was plenty of problems and controversy happening in my life in 1979, that's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Speaking of problems, the title of this studcast leads us to that very subject. Studcast number 307. This is 307. Can you believe that? It's called Knoxville's Lost Night and Atlas versus Idol. So the first part of that title, Knoxville's Lost Night, doesn't sound good for sure. So I guess that leads to the question, where do we ride first, Stud? Well, we're going to find out, man, just how bad things can get sometimes. Uh, this is going to be a little controversy and a, and a lot of problems in this one. And uh, the idol and the Atlas part of the title is a follow-up from last week's Studcast, where we found out that the Hulk was uh, Southeastern wrestling history at that point, uh, except he was going to come back for one final match, which will be in actually the next Studcast. Uh, and he's going to be wrestling the NWA world champion, Harley Race. And uh, so uh, looking forward to getting to that one. But uh, Idol was really getting over. But his greatest opponent since his arrival a month earlier in the territory, about a month before this studcast, uh, was Terry the Hog Boulder. And all of a sudden, uh, Terry's gone. And uh, so I promised last studcast that we'd talk about where Hulk was going. Uh, I think you mentioned it last last week, and I said, you know, we just didn't have the time, I, and I was pretty sure we wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But we'll also find out what the plan was to replace him. We'll talk about the Mobile card for the third week of July 1979, on Wednesday night, July 18th to be exact. Uh, we'll talk about the TV to promote that card and the results of it, and the attendances in all three of the major Gulf Coast markets. And then we're going to ride north into Tennessee, man. We're going to discuss the card for Friday night, July the 20th, which was outside in the Chilhowee Park Amphitheater. And the normal TV present preparations to promote that card. Uh, then together, we're all going to encounter the disaster that followed that. So I feel confident that in this one, Dave, we're, we're, going to have a, we're going to have a learning tree question again. I'm pretty sure we're going to get to a learning tree again at the end of this oh good deal all right so i'm glad we're starting down in the gulf coast that's a little unusual for the last number of studcasts but i can't wait to hear what's happened in knoxville as well so how about the card let's start with mobile alabama wednesday july 18th 1979 
Okay, uh, before we get to that card, uh, let's revisit the last studcast uh, shortly here and uh, return to the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. And you asked me, Dave, last week where Huck was going, and I promised that we are going to talk about it this week. And the Huck was not your ordinary wrestler, that's for sure. Uh, word spread fast, obviously, among wrestlers about the unique guys, and even faster, maybe among bookers and owners. All the Southern promoters already knew about Hulk and the tremendous crowds beginning to pack the arenas down there on the Gulf Coast. Okay, I know why word spreads so fast. I've always wanted to say this. Telephone, telegraph, or telewrestler. How about that, stud? I beat you to it. So, so where was Hulk going after leaving Southeastern? Well, it's a great line, Dave. No matter who uses that, man, I love it myself. Uh, and, uh, and I'm all, you know, I'm still uh, not ready to say where he went yet. Let's get to that in just a minute. But we also discussed in the last touchcast the second family feud that was happening. And uh, not between, not the one between me and Jimmy, but the one between my father and my brother Robert. Mm. And uh, mm. something that happened in the Memphis Territory. My brother Robert basically had been fired by my father because Rob didn't, wouldn't continue booking for them after hearing my father and his partner, Jerry Jarrett, mm-hmm. uh, would no longer pay that agreed upon 28% of the gross house to the wrestlers. So many of those wrestlers had made an overnight success out of the territory and had come from Southeastern and particularly a lot of them came out of the Gulf Coast territory down there. So due to that fact, the first four months of 1979 for the Gulf Coast territory had been very bad business-wise until Terry Bolia, who is going to be called the Hulk, arrived there. And because this feud between Robert and my father had happened, many of those southeastern stars had now come back to southeastern Knoxville territory. Uh, That obviously left Memphis territory again in great need of new talent. All right, so don't tell me, Stud, the Memphis territory took the Hulk? After all, you, your brother, and even Jimmy, who was uh, who also went to Memphis, had done to help them. They took your top baby face in southeastern Gulf Coast in the territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. They, they, they certainly did. Uh, but they don't deserve all the blame. You know, we talked last studcast about what mistakes that the Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette, had made. Uh, mistakes that actually caused Terry, in a way, uh, to be unhappy and ready to leave. Mm-hmm. But Terry owed Louie big time. Uh, Terry was going nowhere in wrestling. He kind of bombed out in his home territory of Florida down there, and Louie was the only man willing to take a chance on him. So Louie pushed him and put him on top, and uh, Terry owed it to Louie if he was unhappy to at least go and talk to his booker about it. And uh, then definitely, uh, if they couldn't work things out, he owed it to Louis to give him, at the very least, a traditional two-week notice that he was leaving before he left. And and that was that was common common practice, right? I mean, especially since Louis gave him his first break. Yeah, it was critical for every wrestler to give that notice, no matter how the Booker had used him, whether he'd used him on top or or a first match. Uh, that was just a customary thing in the business. So Louie, like every booker, was basically looking ahead. He had already put cards together for at least another week. He may have had cards. Some bookers put cards together for four weeks in advance. Mm. And now 
all of a sudden his main event for the very next week was gone, Austin. And, uh, you know, uh, Austin Idol's opponent was gone, and uh, he had no replacement. Louis was he was in a bad position. <laughs> he was he was king of the world, and then the next minute, oh no! So what did Louis do? We call me man, like everybody did when there was a problem. <laughs> Where's Ron? <laughs> well, you know, you're the guy at the top, and it's not a good place to be most of the time. You know, so I was the guy basically that had all the connections. That, and thankfully, I had a great relationship with Eddie Graham's territory in Florida, Jim Barnett's territory in Georgia, Bill Watts' Mid-South territory right next to me on the west side of me, and uh, my grandfather Roy's Mid-American territory. So uh, Jim Barnett in Georgia, who was going to become a critical figure in my future here, mm-hmm. uh, he, he did, a, did me a tremendous favor. He actually took Tony Atlas off of all the cards that he was booked on in Georgia, and he sent him to Louis for the entire upcoming week. Wow. All right. That's an amazing story in and of itself, Stud. So how about the card? Mobile, Alabama. How did that go down? Wednesday, July 18th, 1979. Uh, Ricky Fields opened the night against the Inferno. Herb Calvert wrestled Ricky's partner, Terry Latham. Uh, There was a mixed tag match with a woman and a man as partners, uh, Princess Littleheart and Pierre Bonnet, uh, who was a good buddy of Louis from uh, Montreal, Canada, uh, wrestled against Judy Martin and Eddie Sullivan. Ron Slinker was taking on a returning star, one who had gone to Memphis for us as part of this deal we just talked about, where Rob went up there to book, uh, and he was one and a half of the hottest tag team in the Gulf Coast in 1978. Uh, that guy was Randy Colley, the assassin. Uh, he's coming home uh, for the Southeastern Tag Championship. The champion Samoans were defending for the second week in a row against the wrestling pros, one and two. And the main event was for the Southeastern Championship. The champion, Austin Idol, was going to be defending against one of the most popular wrestlers in the history of the South, man. He was over everywhere, Tony Atlas. And boy, was he jacked. That ended up a really good card. Having Tony Atlas in the main event really made it special. So how about the TV show for this one? Well, man, it was a good card, you know, and, uh, uh, and thankfully had a strong TV to promote this card uh, due to Tony Atlas. Not just being on the cards all week, but he was also there for us on Saturday to do the TV show that promoted it. So the TV opened with Austin Idol, Charlie Platt, watching Idol's win over the hole, which he won right in the middle of the ring three days earlier in Mobile, Alabama. This had been recorded, and obviously the Hulk's leaving, and, uh, you know, he's going to do a good job uh, for for uh, Austin Idol. And that win wouldn't have happened if Terry, Terry uh, on the night of Mobile's match, finally sat down with Louie and said, I'm leaving, right? Just before the match started in mm-hmm. Mobile that night. And uh, so he also told Louie that he was, he was not, he wouldn't, he would only be working for the next three days, which meant he's going to work on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then he's going to be gone. And, but he did tell Louie that I will come back for that Dothan show, that huge Dothan show on Friday, July 27th, 1979. Mm -hmm. Louis had already booked the next week at this point, 
And he had Hulk versus Idol in the main event in all the cities for the next week. So Louis called me that night about what was he going to do? You know, what am I going to do, Ron? And, mm-hmm. and so I went and uh, called uh, Jim Barnett the next day, worked out this agreement, and I got, it to, got him Tony Atlas to replace Hulk. Wow. Okay. Was it always that easy to get something like that done that fast? <laughs> no. Good answer to that is no, never. I mean, luckily, I'd already been to Australia twice to work for Barnett. Uh, and he knew what, what was happening. Uh, he knew that the Knoxville War was taking place. Uh, Barnett knew everything about everybody's territory. You know, and uh, he knew I had... I had built Southeastern, and he was going to be a critical part of what happened in Knoxville in the future. Uh, Barnett is going to be talked about quite a bit. So uh, back to the TV show, Dave. Okay, so uh, after Idol and Charlie mm-hmm. watched a strong win over the Hulk, uh, and Idol, uh, you know, got to belittle his next opponent, Tony Atlas. Some uh, Austin went to the ring, and basically he cemented his hold on the title. Man, got himself another win. Uh, and, uh, and he did it with this rarely seen at this point, 1979, there was no Ric Flair running around all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, and using the figure four leg lock. So idols using a hold here. That's kind of ahead of its time, especially for the Gulf coast down there mm-hmm. where people weren't seeing a whole lot of Flair. Right. Flair wasn't a big star at that point, as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. So it was July, and uh, one of the four months in every year that the TV stations across the country gathered their audience ratings, man. So the next TV match was booked to influence those numbers. I mean, I like to be, do special things in these uh, months, uh, four months out of the year that you're going to have ratings. And uh, so uh, it was a very rare ladies' match on TV. Didn't have a whole lot of that. Uh, you know, we put them ladies in the buildings, but this one I put on TV and uh, it was going to be Princess Little Heart and Judy Martin. And uh, they had a great match down there. I had Louie put them on there, as a matter of fact, because I was up north. I wasn't there. But the personality profile on this one was done live. And uh, no one had any idea who was on it. And, uh, you know, those fans sat right next to where we did the profile on the bleachers. And uh, when this guy entered the studio, the fans went crazy. Uh, and that was Tony Atlas. And, uh, you know, nobody knew Atlas was coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was already a huge star in neighboring Georgia next state over. And because many of their TV stations were so close to us in Alabama that many of their signals overlapped. We overlap with uh, Columbus, Georgia, and uh, and uh, some of Atlanta. And uh, so... Uh, we had, uh, you know, this overlap uh, with our TV stations and his. So that made Tony Atlas an even bigger star for the fans down there because they had seen him, a lot of them, but they never expected to see him wrestle in their cities, in those cities down there. So Tony was not only a man, a tremendous physical specimen, but he was pretty darn good talker as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was so humble. What a humble guy he was uh, and he and he he never bragged, but you know he was humble. You know, and uh, Charlie says, "Gosh, you're a huge star in Georgia, and you're a good, huge star in Florida." And and uh, you know, uh, so it, uh, Tony was so humble. You know, he just kind of uh, you know <laughs> the, nodded his head, and uh, you know, 
So it, it was not a, you know, so it wasn't a big, came as a big surprise when he announced he was coming to Southeastern. And he told him right there on the profile, I'm here to win the Southeastern Championship belt from Austin Idol. Well, the studio exploded, man. I couldn't have found a better replacement for the Hulk than Tony Atlas. What he fit perfectly into this. Mm. So uh, I had Louie then, man, to double up on this TV ratings, man. Uh, the next match after the profile was a Southeastern Tag Championship match on TV. And it was Billy Spears uh, and his extremely impressive Samoan team uh, that had recently regained their tag belts after their only loss. 13 weeks they'd been in Southeastern Gulf Coast. They had never lost but this one time. And uh, so before the match, uh, Spears brought his guys to the set and they watched their win uh, where they won those titles back from Fields and Latham to regain the title again. And then they went to the ring and they were facing the same team, the wrestling pros that they were going to be wrestling in all of these cities the coming week and that upcoming week. So Louis said this match was one of the best TV tag matches he'd ever seen. It, it ended in a 15 minute time limit draw. Uh, with Billy Spears making all kinds of mistakes at the end of the match, Charlie told me that almost cost his team their belts on TV. It was a championship match on TV, and they almost lost them. <laughs> and he said the TV audience was really going crazy after the match because the pros left the ring, and the two Samoans got right in Spears' face, man. Uh, so bad that he actually jumped and ran to the dressing room. He couldn't take it. <laughs> so then the last match of the show was another thrill for the audience. For those who had never seen this guy, Tony Atlas wrestled, man, and uh, they got their first look at a superstar. And he was against the very competent Mask Inferno. Great talent, man. Uh, on the end of that match, Atlas went for the Inferno's mask, and the studio audience was going crazy, and Idol came from the dressing room uh, behind Tony's back. He's trying to pull the mask off, and he attacked Tony from behind. And uh, so uh, Idol leg dived him, um, and uh, you know, and then he started uh, trying to apply his figure four to Atlas. Uh, and obviously, I think uh, you know he would he would like to have been able to injure him right there in the TV match and not have to wrestle him the whole week. <laughs> so Idol got one of his legs, and they, you bend his leg at a 90-degree at a angle, and he had that leg bent. And when he went for, to get the other leg, uh, Idol had those big, massive legs. I mean, uh, Atlas did, and uh, he popped that foot in Idol's face and shot him out on the concrete backwards through the ropes. <laughs> and, uh, boy, there was a big roar from the studio. So Idol wasn't going to be able to beat Tony Atlas with his – Figure four, that was for sure. Wow. All right, that uh, really sounds like a great TV. So a ladies' match, a Southeastern Tag Championship match, Austin Idol on the front of the show with Tony Atlas on the end of the show. All right, so what about Mobile four days later? Well, the Mask Inferno won over Ricky Fields. Uh, Terry Latham beat Herb Calvert. And the tag, the mixed tag match that Judy Martin and Eddie Sullivan got to win over. Uh, and they were managed by Billy Spears, who went out there because he managed Sullivan. Uh, and he helped out a little bit in their victory over Princess Little Heart and Pierre Bonnet. And then the returning assassin, Randy Colley, got off to a good start. 
his first night in there with a win over Ron Slinker, the TV champion, but it wasn't for the trophy. The match, uh, Slinker was the TV champion, but this was not a match for the trophy. The Southeastern Tag Championship had the champion Samoans, managed by Billy Spears, winning again, but barely, over the wrestling pros, who were pretty darn good team for not being that, having been spent a lot of time together. Then Billy Spears ended up doing everything wrong again, just like he had done on TV. And, uh, and again, he almost got his Samoans beat. So Billy's not doing too good at this point. <laughs> so one of the best things that came from the way the Hulk was leaving the territory, Dave, was getting a wrestler like Tony Atlas to come and take his place. And even more important than that was getting this win for Austin Idol over Tony Atlas and all these major markets. You know, to me, it's kind of like playing the shell game, and there's a winner under every shell. And and I think that's kind of what happened. It was a little bit of distraction. Uh, well, what happened to the Hulk? Oh, wow, there's Tony Atlas all at one time. So it really sounds like you kind of pulled a rabbit out of a hat on this one, Ron. Well, <laughs> Uh, I guess so. Maybe a really, I'd call him a muscled up rabbit. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the one thing I really regret about Tony Atlas is the fact that I never got to work full time. He never got to work for me full time. And, and he did some shots for us here and there in the years after this particular uh, week here, but, but I would never have the pleasure of booking or using him full time. He was a great talent, and every time I ran into him at events, even nowadays, he's still around. I see him sometimes when I go to these uh, these shows at the different events, and he comes to me and he reminds me about this week, <laughs> this particular week. Ron, you beat me every night. <laughs> well, maybe that's why I never got him full time. <laughs> never thought about it that way. Wow. All right. That's an, you know, you what, that's an incredible career you had stud at all the stars. You must've either wrestled or booked or even both in some occasions. So how about attendances for the three major cities there in Alabama that could have easily all been a disaster? How'd you do? Well, man, it was crazy. I mean, all three of the cities, man, it went up from the week before and the week before was idle against Hulk. Wrestling in a lumberjack match. So, you know, obviously Atlas was strong. And uh, Montgomery went from 3,500 up to 4,000. Dothan went from 3,800 to over 4,000, 4,200. And Mobile went from 5,000 uh, the week before to a sellout in Expo Hall of 5,600. That's all we could put in there. Okay, Stud, I'll tell you what, this has been a great first half. When we come back on this Studcast, and I can't wait. We're going to be talking about Knoxville's lost night. It sounds it sounds pretty bad to me. We'll find out. Is it bad? That's coming up next when this Studcast continues. All right, Studcast fans, don't miss the next Ask the Stud 7 question and answer show. It's on Ron's YouTube Southeastern Rewind site. Subscribe now. It's available Saturday, July 15th. This one has some tremendous questions, and the Stud has all the fantastic answers. These shows are fast becoming classics with a format that allows Ron to utilize years of his unique knowledge of just about all aspects of the sport. 
casual listener to historic specialist. You'll find these to be a wealth of wrestling information. Ask the Stud, number seven, Saturday, July 15th, YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. It is the second segment of episode number 307 called Knoxville's Lost Night Atlas versus Idol. We've already heard about Atlas versus Idol. So we've arrived in Tennessee, a southeastern territory that's been under fire for like almost two months now, Ron. So do you want to set us up like for the second part of this studcast and how everything's going to go down about this lost night? Did it happen? Did it not? Yeah, man. I, well, I'd be glad to, man. So, so we're starting to talk. We're, we're talking about in June of 1979. Basically, I want to set the kind of the tone for, for what's going to be happening in the second half here. Maybe go back and for those that maybe haven't listened to all the episodes lately. Uh, in June of 1979, basically a band of five wrestlers decided to walk away from the Southeastern Territory. Uh, that I had at that point uh, started five years earlier. And I'd been paying them very well. And uh, none of the five ever came to me uh, where they, were, they said, I'm, I'm not happy uh, or, or with a legitimate problem of any kind. Uh, three of those guys, Ron Wright, Ronnie Garvin, and Bob Orton Jr., had basically been there for three years. In Ron Wright's case, He'd been there since the first day I started Southeastern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Larry Simon, the great Malenko, and uh, ringleader Bob Roop, they'd only been there for, for just about a year. Uh, so obviously things had not worked out to their liking. But instead of just finding a new place to work and walking away, as was the case for 99 out of 100 disgruntled wrestlers probably in the country, and 99% of them, uh, the, they just, they came to you, uh, they, they gave you a notice or you gave them a notice. They went away. If they were unhappy, they went away. But this group decided they wanted to create their own wrestling company right there in Knoxville. Uh, they wanted to call it All-Star Wrestling. And uh, they were going to make an attempt to take over wrestling in Knoxville and the surrounding area. And they felt uh, no need, like uh, I had, that it was a common thing uh, to purchase the rights to operate there. You know, and that's what I'd done basically from John Cassana, which was about uh, five years earlier at this point. Uh, I paid uh, $2,000 per month basically to him each month. And by the end of our agreement, uh, a five-year deal here, I had paid him a total of 150000 to present wrestling events in that part of the country. They had paid nothing for that right. Wow. Uh, and they didn't uh, expect to ever pay anything for it. <laughs> they, they were <laughs> like, we're just going to take this and, uh, you know, uh, see you. Bye-bye. You're going to be gone and we'll, <laughs> we'll own this and, you know, we'll get it for free. So on this, the third week in July 1979, they were running their sixth event. All right, that's a pretty good description, Stud, of the situation in the southeastern Knoxville Territory on Friday night, July 20th, 1979. So you were running in the Chilhowee Park Amphitheater. So what was on the card that night? Well, it was the biggest card of the summer of 1979. The opening match was a tag match. Dr. D, David Schultz, and Eddie Mansfield were facing off against Ted Allen 
and a local talent there, a, guy, a kid that uh, trained a lot of guys later on, uh, Rick Connors. Uh, then the rest of the cart could have basically been main eventers in, in most territories. So first and the first, that isn't a very bad, bad, bad the first tag match. You got David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield in it. You got David Schultz, a Hall of Famer, in the first match. So then the rest of the card was Crusher Blackwell, uh, and he was uh, going up against Alexis Smirnoff. You had the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., who was going to take on Dean Ho. Uh, in the first of three championship matches on this card, this first one for the United States heavyweight title, the champion, Tony Charles, was scheduled to face the newest heel in the territory, Jimmy Golden. And uh, that was kind of because uh, Jimmy, in his, in his profile on the last television program, specifically mentioned Tony Charles and Tony, Tony Charles' belt. So uh, he's going to get that shot he wanted to have at, uh, at a championship belt. And uh, so he's going to get the shot at Tony Charles' United States Junior Heavyweight Championship. The next title match was for the Southeastern belt. Champion Dick Slater was going to be wrestling against Kevin Sullivan. Then the last title match for the Southeastern title, uh, the tag championship, the champions, Tori Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., were going to be facing me and my brother Robert. Then to top all that off, Dave, was going to be the third annual Summer Pole Battle Royal. 17 wrestlers going for the $5,000 on top of that 20-foot high pole. Okay, let's see if I got all this. Six matches, three of them for championships, and a pole battle royal. <laughs> so I can see why that was probably the best Knoxville card of the summer, maybe as things went for the entire year. So how about the TV that set it all up? It had to be a good one. Well, it was loaded as well, man, especially since it was July. You know, it's we're in the same month uh, in Tennessee as what they were down south. So, you know, I want to jack these TVs as much as I can. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, so it opened up with Tony Charles uh, watching his United States junior title match with Kevin Sullivan from the night before. It was Kevin's last chance to win the United States championship, and he didn't get it done. And uh, so uh, once uh, Tony uh, watched the rest of this video, he stayed at the set with Les. Les invited him to, and he says, how would you like to watch your next challenger for your belt? Uh, he's in the first match. <laughs> so, uh, you know, studio uh, erupted in booze, man, when Jimmy came in, into the studio. I mean, wow, he had so much heat so fast. Uh, and he kept building his heat, man. Uh, you know, when he won, he gave the studio crowd at the end of it the old up yours arm gesture that the heels used to do back in the day. You know, yeah, yeah. You know he'd pop his, pop his arm up there, you know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and I think he did it to everybody, everybody on the three sides of the ring. <laughs> we had uh, fans and, uh, mm -hmm. and then uh, he waited to the cameras. He's watched the cameras on the floor when they all got a shot of him. He's still in the ring. He gave the old uh, up yours to the fans at home. <laughs> Jimmy was a natural heel. I mean, he was really starting to enjoy being a heel. Then the second segment started with the Southeastern champion, Dick Slater. He, was, he joined Les at the set with his belt, and, uh, and he watched his opponent uh, the next Friday night. Uh, 
Kevin Sullivan, uh, who was in the next TV match. So, you know, we were putting these, they were putting the wrestler that was in the ring and uh, his opponent at the set for pretty much this entire program. Uh, and it always made good, good, good television because you got these comments from a guy that's going to be wrestling as the guy in the ring. And uh, yeah. uh, that was always a lot of good back and forth, especially with Les being there. Oh, no doubt. So that TV was off to a really good start. But I know one thing, the personality profile has got to be big on this one. What was that like? Well, it's it's more like, uh, you know, what was on the personality profile and how many guys were going to be in this one, man, hmm. uh, when this profile was over. This this was really we did something that had never been done, uh, never that we'd never done. I doubt it was ever done on any TV. So Les did this profile by himself from inside the ring. And uh, we had brought in that 20 foot tall pole. Uh, before all the fans came into the studio, and we attached it to one of the ring posts, and uh, we put a bag on top of it, had $2,000 in, in the bag, okay? So Les then explained how old battle royals, uh, how they work, and, uh, and he went through the whole process. He even climbed up on the top rope uh, and uh, so had the cameras right down underneath him looking up into the studio lights, and, uh, and beyond, the, this pole was, it just went almost out of sight. And, uh, and at the top of the pole, it, it was quite a distance. Uh, if you were standing on the top rope, you still had to climb probably 10, 10 or 12 feet to get to the money. And, uh, and on the top of the pole in this TV studio, it was only about two feet from the ceiling of the building. You, could, uh, you couldn't even hardly see where the, where the bag of money was on the top of it. So uh, hmm. when Les climbed down off the top rope, uh, he, he nobody knew what was coming at this point. You know, they just figured Les was going to talk about the profile. I mean, talk about the uh, the big event here in the pole battle royal. But when he got down off the top rope, he says, now, fans, we're going to do something special for you. We're going to give you a pole battle royal here on television. <laughs> wow. You no, know? And, they, you know, wow. Yeah. <laughs> The fans in the studio popped, and uh, I imagine those at home did too, you know, like, geez, they're going to do this right now on TV. So basically, it was a short version of it, but uh, it was giving them something really spectacular. And bear in mind, it's always in that uh, rating period month. Yeah. Yeah, so the setup for what was going to be happening at Chill Howie Park Amphitheater. So, I mean, that is really, that's cool. So a pole battle royal on TV, I've never really heard. I don't think I've ever seen one on TV before. Well, I'm happy to say, man, we were not accustomed to doing what everybody else did. Right? I mean, yeah, we, we did some outrageous <laughs> things, and uh, you know, others didn't didn't do it. Uh, we were probably one of the one of the very few wrestling companies that even knew anything about Arbitron and Nielsen TV audience rating periods. Right? So. Uh, uh, much less uh, give to give fans something special, especially when it was during rating period. That was something that probably very few uh, wrestling companies did back in those days. I don't think a lot of guys and a lot of promoters, they were mostly a, a lot older than I was. I was a young man at this point, and I kind of I was into what was happening with TV stations and what was going on, especially when it came to numbers. Mm -hmm. I knew how important it was. I don't think a lot of the older promoters and the 
40s and 50s realized uh, how all this worked and uh, they didn't take advantage of it and then they they really missed the ball by by not doing that i think mm -hmm. so these kind of things would give you one of you know it give you one of those wide-eyed shocking looks uh, from your tv station's general manager when he got that rating book man i could almost picture and opened it up to two o'clock on saturday afternoon and go whoa and then I would sometimes get these calls at, right after rating books came in mm -hmm. uh, from general managers that say, come on down here, Ron, I want to show you something. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Like, oh, yeah. I know what this is going to be, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, after they, after I'd come down and uh, we'd sit down in their office or wherever, and uh, they'd slide the book over there and say, wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> We love you, man. <laughs> it was, it was, it was nice feeling. It was great, and uh, and not only that, it it proved that we, you know, we were doing something right. Yeah, uh, Ron, could you do wrestling weekday mornings from seven till nine for us? Every weekday, we'd like to get that hooked up. So when when can you start? Well, that's <laughs> that's that's cool right there. Nothing more important than that. So how was this TV? And the, the pole battle royals, how'd you get it started? Well, Les, obviously, when he climbed down off the ring and uh, off the uh, top rope and he told everybody what we're going to do, he just stayed in the ring and he just uh, introduced everybody. So the contestants in the battle royal started arriving in the ring. The first one in was the Mongolian Stomper. Then came Alexis Smirnoff, uh, Crusher Blackwell, Dean Ho, David Schultz, Eddie Mansfield, Ted Allen, Rick Connors. I mean, they just kept coming and coming, and the fans are just getting more excited as uh, as he's uh, introducing them. It's a lot of great talent right there. So who uh, who picked up the win? Well, the Mongolian Stomper did, man. Uh, but it, not before uh, we had about 15 minutes of absolute pandemonium in that TV studio audience. And, uh, you know, these pole battle rolls were always exciting events. But, uh, you know, in a studio like this, and when a studio gets really involved in something like that, I, you know what's happening at home. Mm -hmm. They're doing the same thing at home, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> the studio audience is always an indication of what those people at home are doing and how much they enjoy. Yeah. So let's close the segment out uh, by announcing the winner. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. come into the room, come into the ring. Uh, when uh, Stomper came down from the top of the pole, uh, he gave the bag to, <laughs> to GD because – GG was the money man, and uh, GG opened the bag, and he actually had, he had hundred dollar bills in it, and he took out half the hundred dollar bills, and he gave them to Stomper, mm -hmm. and he stuffed the other money in his pocket. Well, right? of course. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and the, and it was great. It was a heck of a lead in, and then Les closed out the segment. He goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, you just watched an eight man pole battle royal <laughs> next Friday night in Chilhowee Park. There's going to be seventeen men in that ring." Wow, seventeen. That had to be. I mean, that was that was huge. That was great. So, all right, who was in the last match on TV? How'd you wrap up? Well, my brother and I, uh, gorgeous George Jr., uh, brought his champions Tanaka and uh, Fuji in with their belts to the set with Les and uh, Gigi uh, made some comments about us. Obviously, they weren't the good comments. 
uh, and about the match that was going we were going to have and and how good that uh, this next pole battle was going to be for him and his men because this one the next one's for five thousand dollars right <laughs> and, uh, so you know we're the boys are feeling good here and uh, next Friday night we're all going to come out of there with uh, more big bread in our pockets. <laughs> All right, that's a that's a fantastic TV show right there. So it seemed like everything pointed obviously to a huge crowd for this one. So why then did you call this Knoxville's lost Knoxville's lost night in the first part of the studcast uh, as far as the title goes? Well, you know, like you said, Matt, everything had gone perfectly. Uh, my brother Slater, uh, Jimmy, and I. Uh, we sat and talked after the TV before, before we went home about guessing what we're going to draw uh, next Friday night uh, after having that kind of TV and having the whole battle royal on TV and everything. And all of us were, were saying 5,000, you know, and, uh, and we'd been struggling here and with this war going on and it just wasn't coming up. But we all felt, wow, this is, this is going to be good. And uh, so, so it's going to take, uh, uh, you know, we were we we felt like that, you know, with this type of an event and the way it had been built on this TV show, that we're going to take half of their crowd that normally went to their matches are going to come to see this night and this event, you know. And I felt like, you know, that this uh, this might uh, be a way to knock them down, maybe uh, crush them, maybe they end us in this opposition and. And uh, them end up leaving because this might turn things around big time. And and I'll never forget this night, Dave. I gotta say, man, the the, the day I woke up uh, on that Friday morning, it was beautiful weather, and it was hot and dry. And uh, and then when I started for Chilhowee Park and and going to the amphitheater out there, it was about six o'clock, man. And I looked off to my west, and that's where your weather came from, that part of the country, uh, from Nashville. It came across the state, uh, you know, to the east. And I looked off to the west, and uh, there was some beginning of some large thunderstorms uh, off in that direction. So probably about an hour or more uh, from the amphitheater, uh, uh, you know, the storms were probably about an hour or more away. And the amphitheater was on the eastern side of Knoxville. So it was going to take a little longer than where I was at at home. So in the five summers that I'd been having these matches in the Parks Amphitheater, I had never lost an entire vent to rain. So the closer I got to the park, man, the darker the sky got with clouds. And uh, when I arrived at the park, there was cars everywhere, man. Uh, I mean, they, they, the crowd was... <laughs> It really indicated to me just the number of cars that were already in the parking lot, how big it was going to be. I got up the hill, this, and, uh, and the uh, amphitheater sat on top of a big hill. And, uh, you, know, you know, we never opened the box office before 7 o'clock. So by 7 o'clock, there was a line of people probably 50 yards long and five wide down the big hill from the amphitheater. Uh, and then the storm began. And uh, wow, the night went downhill from there. Uh, thunder and lightning and wind, this, this storm had it all, man. And uh, the fans were in line, you know, but then we hadn't gotten to 7 o'clock or, you know, to open up the gates. Uh, the, they, they just took off running. 
<laughs> it was raining and lightning, and the, so they all ran back to their cars, and they sat in their cars for a long time. Uh, so I sent a message with Mac, who was, uh, you know, doing the head refereeing, but he also went and handled business uh, if I needed him to do something with the box office. And I told him, I'd go tell the people in the box office to hold up the ticket sales until the storm ended, basically to protect the customers. I mean, if you sold them a ticket, what are you going to do then? Expect them to go sit in the rain and the lightning and everything? So, <laughs> no, I said, uh, let's don't sell any tickets yet. So the ring staff, I had the ring staff go out and take the canvas off of the ring to keep the canvas from getting wet because, you know, the rain stops and we go put the canvas back on. You got uh, dry canvas. Uh, you can't wrestle in a wet canvas, I can tell you that, with wrestling shoes on. So wrestlers started to arrive in the dressing room, and luckily they had these special places to park that were close to the dressing room, so they didn't have to fight to get in there and all the rain. So, But the fans stayed in the parking lot. And I had this window in this building where you could get up on a, a chair and look out the window, and I could see the parking lot down below. And fans were still hanging in there, man. They wanted to stay, you know, uh, but they couldn't safely leave their cars. And uh, by 8 o'clock, when it rolled around, uh, there was no lead up in the storm. Uh, obviously, there wasn't a ticket sold yet for the event, and, uh, and the event was due to start at 8.30. Mm. So 8.30, normal starting time, storm man was worse than ever. So I sat down with Slater and Rob and Jimmy, and we talked about the few options that was left to save the night. You know, if this stopped right now, how long is it going to take us to sell the tickets to all these people that are still out there? You know, uh, and uh, and then there was an option, and the option is let's don't run tonight, and let's bring this back next week. You know, so uh, so you know, and and I also told them if you, if we had to cancel, that I was going to still pay the wrestlers. I mean, I couldn't afford. To, we were working through this war, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, crowds weren't as big as normal, so the, it would have been disastrous to do anything other than that. Yeah. So 9 p.m. on Friday, July the 20th, 1979, in uh, Knoxville, Chihuahua Park, I called off what would have undoubtedly been the biggest Knoxville event of the summer for sure. Wow. And uh, and uh, and and thus, man, that's the name in the studcast, uh, Knoxville's Lost Night. That's where it wow. came from. All right, so I mean that's a, it's kind of a sad story. You've got an incredible buildup. You've got a crowd that's very excited about being there, but you were also very generous to pay wrestlers, even though they didn't wrestle. So more than ever, I see why you say 1979 was the worst year in your wrestling career. It surely can't get it. it can it get any worse, Rod? Oh yeah, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Come yeah, on. It, it did. It, <laughs> think about it. I mean, uh, so not only were we not able to take uh, part of All-Stars crowd, you know, that we were thinking might happen, that they'll see this TV and, and all the things that we're offering on this event compared to their little dinky deal, and we're going to pick up half of their crowd maybe, uh, we couldn't run our own matches. So we didn't – we had to cancel the night. We didn't have to uh, – weren't able to run our own matches. And uh, that meant that those fans sitting down there in the parking lot hadn't spent their money to see their wrestling. 
So what do you think they did? Uh, the next night, All-Star ran. They had a beautiful night. And those a lot of they had their biggest crowd ever because fans the night before couldn't get in to see their matches. <laughs> so wow. it was just a double whammy for us, man. Uh, a bad deal. Wow. All right. Do I have to take more bad news? I hope, I hope we're finished with the bad news. All right. So I don't know how you survived 1979, but there is some good news. Guess what? We do have time. Hopefully an upbeat learning tree question <laughs> is going to happen on this show. All right. All right. Are you ready, Rod? So our question comes from Adder Nickerson. I hope I say this right. From Byramoir Gwent in Wales in the UK. He says, I have discovered your Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel, and I'm proud to say my home city is the same as your wrestler, Adrian Street. He is now retired, but still appears to be one of the most popular wrestlers on your channel. He's, of course, referring to Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. What do you think? Why do you think that happens, he says? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, wow. Uh, well, Dave, <laughs> I think, I, you know, I'm going to call this gentleman by his first name, Adder. I, I don't think I've ever heard that name before. That's a very strange name. And uh, obviously, he's from uh, <laughs> the United Kingdom. And uh, and uh, and it's a great question, um, Adder. Uh, you know, uh, and wow, we're going to talk a little bit about Adrian Street. Adrian Street, man, to me, is one of the most complex and talented individuals I ever met. Uh, besides being one of the toughest shooters in the world back in his day and, and to basically the end of his career. When you're a shooter, you never lose those skills. Uh, and he, beyond being a great shooter in his, in his sport, uh, he wrote these books. He wrote books. He had he, he might have had 10 books. Uh, he painted. He sang his own songs. I mean, and he had many more hobbies as well. He was a, he was a really, really a, 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 an amazing, amazing person. And as far as wrestling goes and, and why fans love him so much, Adder, uh, I have no idea, basically. I mean, I know he definitely had the strangest style of wrestling that I'd ever seen. Uh, and, and I knew that when he first sent me a video and uh, got a first look at it. Uh, and I remember uh, running it in the WTVY studio up top. And and uh, normally uh, it was just me and the director would be watching it and Charlie Platt would be watching it. But I remember this video started and within uh, two minutes, everybody up there, all the cameramen, and, uh, and they were all like, wow, look at this guy, you know. So, uh, and, and he actually was very famous, as a, and he was considered a glam rock wrestler. They even put a name for him, gave himself, gave him a name. He called him a glam rock wrestler. Uh, they said that he influenced pop culture. And uh, and obviously with a name like Xadrian Street, I mean he had to he had the right name, and so uh, so you know there have been many wrestlers with strange gimmicks, man, things that make them different. 
Wow. But I think what really made Adrian so popular, he asked about, uh, had her here ask about what why he was so popular. Mm-hmm. I think it made, what made him so popular is the fact that if you watch three minutes of, of Adrian's matches, and uh, no matter how he danced and pranced around the ring during the course of that three minutes, somewhere in that three minutes, he's going to throw in a very slick, smooth wrestling move. Beautiful move. Mm-hmm. Wow, these unbelievable takedowns and things that you don't see from anybody as well. So uh, that, to me, made made Adrian unique. And as far as fans liking him, uh, I think it's true when you when we put something on the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel of Adrian Street, uh, wow, the numbers <laughs> grow really fast. I mean, people just flock to see that Adrian stuff. And the uh, and thank goodness for that, because uh, we got so many great Adrian matches from those days in continental wrestling between 1985 and 1987 that he was with us, that the fans are, are going to be visiting that uh, site for years to come because uh, we we run these uh, uh, short rides with the stud. And uh, when we do those, if there's something to do with Adrian in there, mm-hmm. wow, fans just really, really love them. So, uh, so great question, Adder. Uh, and I really appreciate you getting in touch with us out of uh, out of England and that part of the world over there, United Kingdom. Uh, wow, it's great! It's great! It's amazing, to, Dave. Uh, we got fans everywhere. Oh, for real! And and that is all kind of descriptions that you just did of the exotic Adrian Street stud, and it makes a lot of sense because who knows uh, what he is. So this this was another great stud cast that ended with a perfect example of a night gone wrong in a devastating year that I didn't know how you ever got over. So what are we going to be looking at on the next stud cast? What happens from here? Well, man, in the Gulf Coast, uh, we're going to see the Hulk uh, for the last time. And uh, he's going to face NWA world champion Harley Race. Uh, in the football stadium in Dothan, Alabama. Uh, uh, he had beaten Harley Race nine weeks earlier when uh, I was scheduled to wrestle Harley. And then a match uh, that the Hulk was involved in, and uh, I went out to help him. Ox Baker came down, hit me with a heart punch. Uh, I was carried back to the dressing room. Uh, Harley went to the ring with his belt and... Uh, he said, uh, if I couldn't wrestle, he said, I could send out anybody I wanted to, and he, he would wrestle them. And uh, so for fans that don't, might not have heard that stud cast, uh, I looked around the dressing room, and there was Hulk. And I said, but send him. Hulk, take the match. And uh, so Hulk went out, and, uh, hmm. and Harley left the rig and took his belt back to the dressing room. <laughs> And uh, when he saw who was coming, and uh, then he came back to the ring and said, yeah, I'll wrestle you, but I, not for the belt. <laughs> and he beat Harley Race. So beat Harley Race with his bear hug. So, uh, you know, so, so in, in this next studcast, we're going to talk about the largest crowd to ever see wrestling in Dothan, Alabama. Uh, it was a loaded card. Uh, it's got both the Briscoe brothers on it, Jack and Jerry. It's got Ox Baker returning. It's Crusher Blackwell's first ever appearance in the Gulf Coast. And uh, 
Then uh, we'll, after we get through down there on the Gulf Coast, we're going to head north into Tennessee. And after the loss of this entire night in this studcast, we're going to come back next week. And uh, we're going to give everything in it, uh, including the pole battle royal. And, uh, and a surprise return of one of the all-time greats and past Southeastern Tag Champion, who was a champion in 1975, in the first year that I that I had uh, Southeastern going, uh, it was uh, uh, Norvell Austin and uh, Butch Malone were the champions, and Homer Odell was their manager. Uh, and Norvell's going to be coming back, and he's going to be teaming with his longtime friend, one of the great buddies that uh, that he ever had, Jimmy Golden. So we're going to have Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, and uh, they're going to be uh, going after my brother and I. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, the war is going to get even hotter in this next one because uh, All Star is going to be introducing a new tack, a new a new way to to get under our skin. <laughs> All right, we've got it coming. So that's a loaded stud cast, and we can't wait for that. I mean, that is going to be cool. And that's on the very next studcast. Hey, folks, on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like and follow him there to become friends with a living legend. Same thing on Twitter. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow him there as well. Check out Ron's fantastic website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com for every studcast ever done. 43 super stud cast and the stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, including Ron's thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy there at tnstud.com. Of course, Ron's YouTube Southeastern Rewind is red hot and it's happening right now. It has more than 300 hours of videos you can start watching right now and you'd still be watching when we come back next week it has and and for and then way on farther after that it has the last 86 stud cast 52 stud stories and now 53 short rides with the stud don't miss the new ask the stud seven question and answer show coming on saturday july 15th 2023 so you got to check that one out very soon. Subscribe now to the best old school wrestling site on YouTube. It's called Southeastern Rewind. All right. Any any words to wrap this thing up, Stud? Well, man, obviously I want to thank all our listeners, man. And uh, and after what happened uh, with this last one, to welcome all these tremendous new listeners that uh, jumped on board with us. Uh Everyone's support, obviously, all the time, uh, so far as uh, you and I are concerned, I think I'll speak for you as well on this, is greatly appreciated. And, uh, please take care of yourselves and others out there, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production. For Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.